Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. The first two episodes of this Holy Week series are short reflections on Palm Sunday and Monday Thursday, with a particular focus on a few of the sins of capitalism. If you haven't checked those out yet, I'd recommend pausing this one and starting with those first, because for Good Friday, I thought I'd do something a little different. Instead of looking at how Christians could view Good Friday in light of the instabilities, inequalities, and injustices of capitalism, I thought we could look at how many U.S. American Christians do view the crucifixion of Jesus, and then consider how this mainstream way of thinking about the death of Jesus correlates with how U.S. Americans, both liberal and conservative, see the U.S. in relation to the rest of the world. All right, so instead of asking how we might approach this day as a people committed to liberative struggles for radical freedom and mutual well-being— I want us to consider how our dominant crucifixion narrative, which centers a sacrifice that pays a debt, seems to provide a framework through which the destruction and terror wrought by the U.S.'s global economic and military hegemony is justified. I'm not saying it's a cause and effect thing, but I do think there is an eerie correlation that can be made. Let's start with humanity's state of indebtedness. According to the popular atonement theory held by many U.S. American Christians, the world was a wee bit out of whack before Jesus, and a debt had been accrued by all humanity. And if there's one thing we all know about debt, it's that debts must be paid. Human sin, the story goes, has created an imbalance in the world, an imbalance between creator and creation, and this imbalance is measured specifically in terms of debt. It is the debtor's responsibility to make things right, because the debtor, right, humanity, is said to have made things wrong. Human immorality has led us to need a loan, and the divine creditor is ready to collect. But, as I'm sure we are all familiar with, humanity is unable to pay its debt. While we were all born into this state of indebtedness, we are also incapable of addressing the human condition of indebtedness. We are born into this debtor-creditor relationship. Welcome to the world. And there's nothing we can really do about it. What a mess, right? Well, lucky for us, we are told, God, according to this theology, has decided to pick up the tab and pay off our debt in full. Because, let's not forget, in this world, all debts must be paid. There ain't no forgiveness of loans here. And so God pays the debt by making a sacrifice. God sacrifices the son, or perhaps the son sacrifices himself, as payment for humanity's debt. And this is where things get a little messy. In theory, Christians who subscribe to this theology say that this debt has in fact been paid because of Jesus's or God's sacrifice. In theory, When a debt is paid, the creditor is supposed to be satisfied, right? However, the actions and behaviors of U.S. Christians suggest that humanity's debt to the divine has not been paid at all, but has actually been renewed or in a way extended through Jesus. 
Rather than the sacrifice leading to the abolition of debt or the abolition of humanity owing anything to the divine creditor, Jesus, and by extension the church, has become the new debt collector. Think of it like this. Instead of ending our indebtedness, Jesus, for many Christians, seems to have invested in it or bought it up. It's like CEO Jesus is now also major shareholder Jesus of our bundled up debt. Because if the debt has really been paid and we didn't really owe anything else to God, then humanity could go on its merry way without worry or fear of being eternally tortured, right? When you pay off your mortgage or student loan or your car loan or your credit card, the lender can't continue to punish you if you no longer owe them anything. They no longer have that power over you because the relationship has ended once the debt has been paid in full, plus interest. But clearly, that is not the case for many Christians who subscribe to this narrative. Humanity, many Christians believe, still owes something to God. And what is it we still owe for this sacrifice, this extension or moratorium on our indebtedness? Nothing short of everything. We owe our lives, our obedience, our submission. Our debt hasn't been canceled or forgiven. Rather, it's been renewed. And as the body of Christ, many Christians in the U.S. have taken up the call to represent their understanding of Jesus in the world by making sure humanity appreciates the generosity of this divine lender and the graciousness of the sacrificial loan. And on top of ensuring the world takes on a posture of gratitude, the only way to really pay on this debt is to be remade in Jesus's image. And by that, they mean white corporate U.S. Christianity's image. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, these Christians shout to the world. Bend the knee by individually proclaiming Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Bend the knee by showing us gratitude for our charity and humanitarian aid. Bend the knee by conforming to our white capitalist Western values and social norms. However, U.S. Christian supremacy has always came with a few friends. Insofar as Christian identity in the U.S. is wrapped up with national and racial identity, we can't separate the fact that most U.S. Christians think of American Christianity as a benevolent and just force for good in the world, just as they also see the United States as a benevolent and just force for good in the world. And because most Christians in the U.S. see white capitalist American Christianity as essentially superior and pure, it makes seeing the violence we perpetuate nearly impossible for most U.S. Christians. But the point I'm really wanting to make here is that there is a dangerous correlation between U.S. Christianity's view of itself as being a gracious and benevolent force for good in the world, a force that has primarily, if not always, sacrificed itself for the blessing of all people, and the national belief that the United States of America is, too, a force for good in the world, which has constantly sacrificed itself for the blessing of all people. Both of these inseparable ideologies have created narratives that purport the people of all other nations owe the American church for being such a gift. The American people 
are indebted to their own country because of the exceptional and superior life it has apparently created for all its citizens. And the nations of the world should be grateful for sacrifices the U.S. has constantly made. They owe us. Everyone owes us. And remember, debts must be paid. Both conservative and liberal establishments subscribe to this view of the U.S. in particular. One camp says the U.S. has, since its origins, sacrificed itself benevolently and graciously and should continue to do so for the good of the world. Let us set up our military bases. Let us establish our NGOs. Let us remake your economy for the interests of American corporations because you owe us. And a slightly different yet firmly aligned camp says that the U.S. has, since its origins, sacrificed itself benevolently and graciously and should cease to lose on these bad deals that have always favored poor non-white peoples and poor non-white nations. This camp is tired of giving so many handouts to nations that are rendered inferior and unexceptional. So let us set up our military bases. Let us establish our NGOs. Let us remake your economy for the interests of American corporations because you owe us. And we're tired of being on the losing end. Both camps agree that the U.S., its people, its religion, and its military have primarily existed as a salvific and liberating force for good. Our goodness is incomparable. But again, all debts must be paid. And so in the name of democracy and freedom and justice and liberty, and freedom of speech and freedom of religion and the freedom to privately possess as much property and wealth as one can possibly accrue, the United States of America has, since its origins, committed crucifixion after crucifixion after crucifixion. We have crucified those living within our borders, and we have crucified those living beyond. We are a nation of terror. As Dr. King also said, the United States is the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. The greatest purveyor of violence this world has ever seen. And yet the powerful narratives of U.S. Christian and American exceptionalism and innocence has tricked us into thinking we are not only a liberating force for good, but that the world really is indebted to us for our sacrifices. They owe us. And when an ungrateful or arrogant country refuses to fashion itself in our own image, when a people refuse to take on the religious beliefs and cultural values of U.S. Christians in corporate America, when they resist the opening up of their lands and labor to our nation's richest capitalists, it feels like they are refusing to pay on their debt. And so, as Christians and Americans, we invade and sanction and dump unhelpful charity and open up new markets and send the IMF debt collectors as to remind them that this is our world. It is merely on loan to them. They owe us, and all debts must be paid. In light of Good Friday, U.S. Christians, or Christians anywhere, really, 
should commit ourselves to learning about the ways in which we have participated in the crucifixion of people of other nations, the crucifixion of our neighbors, and even the crucifixion of ourselves, because the one is probably inseparable from all the others. Oftentimes, we are participating in crucifixion without our even knowing. And if we ever hope to join in movements for collective liberation, support resisting peoples in their struggles for mutual well-being, and stand in solidarity with those most brutally oppressed, we will have to recognize that neither U.S. Christianity nor the United States has ever been exceptional or innocent forces for good in the world. Rather, we are a nation of terror. Thanks for listening, and a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.